And then let me open us up in prayer. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for its work in our lives. And we pray, Father, that as the word was read, that you would help us to understand it. Father, and as I preach the word, I, I pray that it would result in our uh, being enlivened by your spirit. Father, we know that uh, unless you build the house, unless you do the work, uh, we labor in vain. And so, Father, we ask that you would go before us even now uh, as uh, I prepare to preach that, that my words would be your words uh, and that the message proclaimed would be one uh, that would be uh, nourishing to our souls, that you would feed us. Father, we come from many different places, and I know, Father, that many in our congregation have been fighting with uh, sickness. So, Father, I pray that you would touch those who, uh, many who, who aren't here today because of sickness. Pray for those who are celebrating new life, and we thank you for the gift of life, Father, and pray your blessing on them. Father, we, we pray for those who are struggling in sorrow uh, as they grieve the loss of a loved one. I pray that wherever we come this morning that you would meet us because you're the God who knows us. And so Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Reveal yourself to us in, in a way that we would see and glorify your son. We ask this in his precious name, amen. Well, the young man had left and had run away looking for freedom. Don't know much about his story other than he ran away. He was a, a slave. He uh, was in servitude and had found it uh, more than he could bear. So he ran away and eventually found himself uh, meeting uh, a man named Paul. The gospel was uh, proclaimed to this man and he came to Christ. Now he found himself in a strange situation. Here he had, he had run away from his earthly master looking for freedom, and he had found freedom in Christ. It's good news, but what should he do? Well, the, Paul's letter to the Colossian believers uh, was sent by Paul from Rome, where he was in prison, uh, back to the believers in Colossae by the hands of Tychicus and Onesimus. That runaway slave was Onesimus. And the letter that, that we have uh, that the, was read, would have been read to the entire congregation there. And I think Onesimus would have been in the room. They would have been gathered together and they would have read the letter from start to finish. I can imagine as we reach the, the part of uh, the passage where we're in now that it might have been a little uncomfortable. But we'll talk more about that as we get later in the passage. But... By the time they did reach uh, the part of the passage where we're looking at today, uh, they would have remembered uh, Paul's words of thanksgiving and prayer that he had, had spoken at the beginning. Thanksgiving over their saving and maturing faith in Christ. From Colossians 1, uh, Paul's prayer was that we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That was the prayer that was in chapter one and the message has carried all the way through and carries into what we're looking at this morning. Throughout the letter, Paul has proclaimed the excellencies of Christ. He's a creator of all things. He's above all things. He's Lord over every aspect of creation. The one and only one who is worthy of our praise. So Paul urges these believers to stay firm in their faith, to live and to grow and to be built up in Jesus Christ, the one who is preeminent over all things. He wants to help them to bring all of their lives into alignment under the submission of a loving, uh, the loving lordship of Christ. He says that they have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so they are to walk in him. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He tells them to set their minds on the things above, not the things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. What, what should it mean then for these believers uh, to live their lives hidden in Christ? What does that look like? Well, over these past weeks, uh, Sean and uh, Paul have teased out the apostles' words from the first part of Colossians 3. And it was there that they uh, talked about, Paul talked about putting off what is earthly and sinful and putting on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then in the verses that we're looking at this morning, Paul gets very specific. There's just a command after command after command. He gets very specific in his applica- application. And what he's done is he's, he's moved from Christ as work as cosmic uh, in redemption all the way down to talking about reconciling uh, not just all things to himself, but all domestic things. The things of our very lives, our homes, our work. Jesus Christ is the Lord of, of all things, of all creation, and he's the Lord of our homes. It's here that Paul seems to shift as he speaks, like I said, to everyone in the room, and it's almost as if he's calling them out. It's just by letter, but you can imagine the people feeling the weight of Paul's words. And as believers, I think it's significant that Paul calls, out, uh, calls us out, because as believers, we can listen and affirm the truths of Scripture and yet still not make the connection to our day-to-day lives and relationships. But the glorious truth is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has a bearing not just on our eternal state, but on our day-to-day lives. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there's no part of creation that Christ doesn't care about. He's promised that one day he will redeem all of creation. And as Christians... As ones who have been raised with Christ, Jesus brings his transforming and redeeming work to every area of our lives. And this is good news. This is very good news because all of our relationships, like every aspect of creation and the world around us, have been impacted by sin and the consequences of the fall. Christian marriages and Christian homes are not immune. I'm sure we all know that by experience. We are in need of Christ's redeeming work to bring the peace of Christ to bear in our homes. 
Just as he's Lord over creation, Jesus Christ is Lord over the home. And in our text this, this morning, we'll see three ways that he's called, uh, that we are called to submit to Christ's lordships in our homes. So the first is that Jesus Christ is Lord of the home, and we see this reflected in his call to selfless marriage under the lordship of Christ. So we see it first in selfless marriage under the lordship of Christ. If you have been married for, well, if you're married and you've been married for longer than a week, you could probably affirm that marriage is difficult. Um, And if you have parents who are married, you might be able to bear witness that marriage is difficult. And one of the greatest challenges in marriage uh, and the leading cause of conflict in marriage comes from the S word, right? The S word. What I'm talking about is selfishness. That's what we're all thinking about, right? And just to prove my point, I want to ask you a question to married people. When I say that selfishness is the leading cause of conflict in the marriage, did you think of yourself or do you think of your spouse's selfishness? I'm guessing that you probably thought of your spouse's selfishness. For the most part, other people in our lives only seem to be selfish when they're doing something that we don't like, right? Or, or, or when they're doing things that don't bring us happiness or joy or pleasure, right? If, if they are doing something uh, in our lives that bring us joy, we don't, they, they don't seem selfish. They seem selfless to us because we want people around us to make us happy and to serve our happiness, When I take couples through premarital counseling, one of the things that I tell them is that marriage will reveal just how selfish you can be. Too often we ask, how do I change my spouse to make me happy? And that's a wrong question. Because what Paul points to is quite different. Paul points to the lordship of Christ. And on the onset, uh, as we begin to talk about it, it's important to point out that Paul's words as we go through this are very brief. He's not saying everything about uh, marriage or uh, these other relationships, and so we're not going to. That's not his focus. In fact, Paul provides greater detail about these relationships in other letters, like the book of Ephesians, where he talks more about marriage in length. But what Paul does say within the context of this letter is significant. And so as we unpack his words, uh, we'll take a look at them within the context. So first, verse 18, what does Paul say? He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And I think we have to acknowledge before we go really any further uh, that these words are controversial and countercultural in the world today. So wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And I think that the reason why they're so controversial is that there are two values that are woven into the fabric of our culture that we believe. One is that human happiness can only be found in our independence. I can do whatever I want. Right? Everyone should be able to pursue whatever makes them happy. Right? I can only be happy if I do what I want. And this has led to a lot of confusion, especially in regards to marriage and what is marriage. People say, well, you've got this idea of marriage, but it'll make me happier if I can do something altogether different. 
So that's, that's one lie that, the, that society has, has uh, given us. And if it's true, uh, then Paul, Paul's words seem to deny freedom to wives and therefore deny them any possibility of happiness. And, and that should concern us. The second thing that's woven into the fabric of our culture is the idea that people who submit, uh, submit themselves to another are by definition then inferior. So somehow that their, their personhood in some way is diminished. And if these two ideas are true, that happiness can only be found in, in freedom and the person who submits is inferior, then these words should be offensive. And we need to keep that in mind when, when especially non-Christians are offended by passages like this. But I also think that we need to be careful to make sure that we're offended by that same idea. Let me, let me uh, one author helped me think through this. One author pointed out, he said that uh, Christians, uh, Christian people sometimes retain those two ideas and then insists that verses like 318 uh, accept offensive conclusions, right? That husbands have a freedom to pursue their own happiness, which wives do not, and that husbands are somehow superior to their wives. The author then goes on to say that the problem is not being offended by such conclusions. Christians, we ought to be offended by the idea that, that husbands somehow have it better than wives, that somehow husbands are better than wives. The problem is utterly unchristian thinking that draws these conclusions from the word of God. In other words, what he's saying is, like, we should find it offensive to think that verse 18 elevates men above women in greater value or their happiness. It elevates them to a greater entitlement to happiness. But what Paul is calling us to in these verses is something that's different. Our new life in Christ is not about chauvinism, but it's about exalting Christ. Our new life in Christ is different than the world's notion of freedom and happiness. We're called to live lives of compassion, not freedom from the demands of others. We're called to live lives of kindness, not self-centered independence. We're called to live lives of humility and not superiority. And these these uh, values are laid out in the verses prior. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the home, and so we submit to him. What does Paul mean uh, by this exhortation to wives? Well, the word here first is that uh, submit here can be translated as to place under or order your life under. So it's, it's a willing and not a forced submission. So he's saying, wives, willingly place yourself their submission. So it's not a forced submission. The, the wife gives up her self-will and submits to her husband's leadership. Paul said this is, this is fitting in the Lord. So she places herself under the authority of her husband because the Lord has placed her husband in authority over her. So in a way, her willingness to submit to her husband flows out of her willingness to submit to Christ. Today, as, as well as back then, we, we need to be careful not to see this as a license for abuse. The husband is not given authority uh, by Christ to selfishly pursue his own ends. We see this reflected in verse 19. 
Verse 19, uh, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So if the wife is called to voluntarily give up her self-will in marriage, the husband is called to voluntarily give up his self-love in marriage. This is even more radical. We think about the the biblical definition of what love is. Love is found in Christ's example. I think of of passages like 1 John 3.16. He says, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Think about that. Right? Yes, wives are called to submit to their husbands under the authority of Christ, but husbands are called to lay down their very lives out of love for their wives. And all of this is under the banner of Christ as Lord over the home. The husband's God-given duty is the well-being of his wife. And so he's called to not be harsh with her. Uh, Another way you could translate those words uh, from the Greek is that uh, to not become bitter. So husbands, don't don't be harsh. Don't become bitter toward your wife. Think about what is it that causes us to be bitter toward our spouses? Well, when we perceive our spouses to be preventing us from being happy. And so the call to Christian submission is never permission for authoritarian, uh, authoritarian ty- tyranny or bullying. It's a call to, to love. So husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. Do not be embittered toward them. And so husbands, the message is that, that we need to take responsibility for making our wives' submission a good and joyful thing. And wives, you need to take some responsibility for making your husbands loving you a good and joyful thing. So to call, uh, the call to faithful Christian marriage is a call to submit to Christ as Lord in the most intimate of your relationships. One of the reasons why uh, young people right, who I meet with for premarital counseling, they tell me, you know, why, why did you come together? Why, you know, you met and you decided to get engaged. What was it? And one of the things that they say is, well, I, I felt like I could really be myself around this other person. I could be my real, true self around them. And that seems great, right? There's the freedom to be who you are. But the reality comes when these two sinners, who are who they are, come together. And then they come into conflict. You see, even within the intimacy of marriage, we need to realize that we can never really be truly our selfish selves. Nowhere this side of heaven, especially not in marriage. And that's why I tell the premier, these couples who are engaged, marriage will show you just how selfish you can be. Right? You may not have realized it when you lived separately and when you had separate lives, but you come together and you realize, boy, you are not meeting my needs and I can't leave and go find them elsewhere when we live together. So the call to Christian marriage is one to submit to the Lord in every aspect of our lives. And the Lord uses marriage, I think, to help show us our sinfulness and to make us more like Christ. The hope is that, the hope that we have, though, is that that the Lord is at work in and through each couple, 
uh, Christian couple, husband and wife, sanctifying you and helping you to grow in your role as a husband and wife. So in these brief words, uh, there's a lot packed in there. Uh, Jesus Christ is Lord of the home, and we see this reflected in a call to selfless marriage under the lordship of Christ. And then next, as we move to the next verses, we see uh, his call to discipleship-oriented parenting under the lordship of Christ. So we see this in verses 20 and 21. So selfless marriage and now discipleship-oriented parenting under the lordship of Christ. So Paul uh, then addresses the children in the room. In verse 20, Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And just as Paul was addressing the children in the room, kids, I want to address you now directly. Right? So kids, if you are coloring, I see all the parents very diligently helping their children. I'm talking to you, kids. This is for you, right? Okay, Paul, the apostle, had something to say to you guys. So I'm going to read the passage again, verse 20. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And so what does it mean to obey your parents? Well, it can mean a lot of things, but one thing, it means that you listen to them. It also means that you take them seriously and their words seriously. Right? When they say something to you, you need to respond. It means you need to respond by doing what they ask you, doesn't it? And Paul said, what did he say? He said, obey them in everything. And I could see all the moms and dads going, yeah, listen to Pastor Steve, right? Because this is really important. And that means that uh, everything, right? Everything means everything. Paul wrote that children are to obey in everything. Mom and dad, that also means that there's things for you as well. It, it, this means that being obedient when your parents are, uh, means that you're, you're leading them godly, but kids, this also means that you're obedient when your parents are around. It also means being obedient when your parents aren't around. Right? So when mom and dad are gone, the apostle Paul says you still need to be obedient to them. And kids, here's something that you might not know. The reason why this is true is that the role of Christian parents, your mom and dad, God has given them that role. They're acting as God's representative in a sense. God has given them the responsibility to care for you. So God calls them to care for you and God calls you to obey them, not for their sake, but for your sake. Your obedience to your parents, it says that it pleases the Lord that's pretty cool, isn't it? That you can please the Lord by obeying your parents. It pleases the Lord because when you do that, when you obey your mom and dad, you're obeying God, right? And the commands that, that he's given for them. Thank you, kids, for paying attention to that, right? At the end, I'll, I'll address you one more time on the fact that none of us obey perfectly, right? But we'll get to that in a second. But then as parents, think about that. Obey in everything, that really raises the bar on what you're asking your kids to do, doesn't it? Right? If you're representing God, you need to be careful right, in, in how you parent. You don't, you don't just want them to do what you want to make your life better. Paul turns to fathers and says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. 
And I think these words can be just uh, as easily directed to mothers, but Paul directs them to fathers in particular. And I think the implication is that Christian parenting includes discipline and setting boundaries to help encourage your children to grow in the Lord. It means saying no to some things, right? Because if, think about marriage, right? If, if the other person was doing everything you liked, they wouldn't seem selfish. And if your kids loved everything you did, there'd be no opportunity for you to have to be warned to, to not provoke them. Discipline is often painful, and it's very often resulting in competing wills, your will against their will. And parents are called to do things like setting boundaries, boundaries like how much time is spent playing games and doing chores and studying for school. So we have to resist the temptation to discipline in ways that make our children fearful or timid in an effort to force or intimidate them into obedience. I mean, have you ever been there as a parent? Were you just tired, right? Will you just obey, right? You want to bring out this verse, kids, obey in the Lord, and it doesn't seem to be working, and so you get angry. But we have to resist the urge to excessive discipline, like yelling, losing our patience, or unforgiving discipline, where we refuse to accept the child's apology. We want to make them pay. They need to know how mad they made us. Maybe humiliating discipline, where we make a child feel worthless. Imbalanced discipline, right? Where there is no encouragement whatsoever. It's, it's just discipline, correction. Or even gospel-less discipline. In other words, never connecting disobedience to Christ's forgiveness. And kids, I want to talk to you again, right? right. See, there's hope when we disobey. Just for mom and dad, there's hope for us or you as kids, right? For all of us, our obedience is not what makes us acceptable to God, right? It's the gospel. And so when Christ dies on the cross and when we believe in him by faith, what happens? Well, he takes our sins upon him and he gives us his righteousness. It's almost like, let's say you're doing really bad in a class. Say maybe an F, and you just, there's not enough time left in the school um, uh, semester or whatever it is uh, for grade school. There's not enough time, and there's no way you're going to get a passing grade. And along comes Jesus, and he's getting an A because he's perfect. And he gives you his report card, and you, and he takes your report card. I mean, isn't that in a, a, a kind of like what Jesus does? Right? He takes our sins upon himself and he pays the penalty for them. So the hope is that it's not our obedience to your mom and dad. And mom and dad, it's not your perfect parenting that causes salvation. Right? It's the grace of Christ. But all of this, right? the fact that when you obey mom and dad, it pleases the Lord, it's pleasing to the Lord. But disobeying mom and dad doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to, you know, well, you talk to mom and dad about that, right? Uh, but I, I just, I want to be careful here. Uh, when Paul says that it's pleasing to the Lord, that we don't start to begin to think, if we want to please the Lord, we've got to be obedient all the time, and then it leads us into legalism. And as parents, we need to keep that in mind, that the gospel should always be part of our discipline, 
right? Because each opportunity of discipline is an opportunity to talk about how the gospel applies to our lives, not just their lives, but our lives. And so as parents, when we provoke our children to anger, it's an opportunity to ask them for forgiveness and to explain to them that we're so thankful for Christ's forgiveness. In addition, we should pursue a discipleship-oriented parenting that teaches our children who Christ is, what it means to live as a Christian. I mean, that's why, as a church, we place so much emphasis on passing our faith from one generation to the next. Right? We believe that children become faith-filled adults by being with faith-filled adults. I think that's, you know, that's why we have all the kids here. And I think it's a remarkable thing that Paul doesn't just address the parents, but he addresses the kids. Right? Paul just could have said, parents, keep your kids in line. Keep them quiet or put them in another room. But he doesn't do that. And Paul also doesn't, doesn't say, husbands, just, just keep your wives submissive. He doesn't do that. And I think the reason he doesn't do that is because, as he said earlier in the letter, he sees them all equal in Christ, in value, all equal in, uh, uh, in recipients of the grace of Christ. And he calls not just the one who has more authority to enforce it, but he calls each of us to respond in obedience to Christ. And that's, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's our response out of faith. Our Lord has saved us. He's transformed us. Jesus Christ is Lord over all. And even the relationships of a husband and a wife, and a child and a parent. So Jesus Christ is Lord of the home. And, and so he calls us to have marriages uh, that are selfless, selfless marriages under the Lordship of Christ, of uh, discipleship-oriented parented, parenting under the Lordship of Christ. And the third laboring under the authority, I'm sorry, under the lordship of Christ. And the reason I include this uh, under the banner of Christ as Lord of the home is because of the makeup of the first century home, often included servants. And so when we imagine that first church gathered there, hearing uh, this letter read, there would have been right, parents, children, husbands, wives, there would have been masters and servants, so the master-servant relationship was on display in the home. Now, if you uh, are a Bible scholar or just look at the footnotes in your Bible, you're going to realize, uh, or you may see, that the word servant, or bondservant, I should say, uh, is actually the same word as slave. And I do want to clarify, uh, you know, you think, well, the Bible just covering something up. What's the difference? Is the Bible condoning slavery? And I think, well, I know that it doesn't condone slavery. And the reason why the translators use the word bondservant, especially here, is to help avoid confusion. You see, back in the first century, uh, there, was, uh, there was slavery, but there was also what was maybe more common uh, maybe closer to the mark would be what we would think of as indentured servants. And so a person could sell themselves uh, into service for a set number of years. Often it was seven years. And then, uh, and then for those, at the end of those seven years, uh, they would be released and they would receive their payment. And they could go on and live their lives. 
and I actually was able to have a conversation uh, with one uh, person who did some of the translating, and they talked about that they used bondservant because they didn't want people getting confused. The Bible is not condoning slavery, um, especially in these next verses that we're going to look at. So that's by the way of clarification. Um, but as, as we look at these verses, uh, yes, it is master and servant or bondservant, but I think it can just as easily be translated into employer-employee. And so much of our own identity is tied up often in our employment, and what we do for a living, that I do think it becomes an extension of, this, of, of our home. Uh, and so these same uh, principles apply. Okay, so let's, let's move on. So what is Paul commending to those who served earthly masters? And so verse 22, he says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleaser, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men. So what is Paul commending those who serve earthly masters? Really, it's actually translated as earthly lords. He wants them to keep in mind that their work is for the Lord. Their work is for the Lord. And so if you're a Christian, right, your work is for the Lord. Secondarily, uh, he tells them that they're called to obey in everything. Now, think about all, all the parents right, who are all rejoicing in the fact that uh, children obey your parents in everything. These are the exact same words. So obey your parents in everything? Guess what? If you're working for somebody, you're supposed to obey in everything there too. Right, so uh, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Why? And the reason that Paul gives is because it pleases the Lord. Once again, very similar to what we saw uh, for uh, children obeying their parents. He says, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. For whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men. And then, so it's, it's what? So we're, we're called to obey in everything. We're called, uh, and why? Because it pleases the Lord. And how? Uh, or to work heartily. So if you think about your own work ethic or the ethic of others uh, in your workplace, right? do they work uh, this way? So you, you need to answer for yourself. But it does say something about who, our Lord, uh, who we are serving. Right? If we're willing uh, to work for the Lord and everything that we do, we're willing to work heartily, it shows our enthusiasm in submitting to Christ. And that's not an easy thing to do, especially if you don't like your job, especially if you feel like you're not getting paid enough. You feel like it's not worth my time. But then Paul addresses that in verse 24. He says, Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord. Christ. And then he says in 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. In a sense, you could say our year-end bonus, our life-end bonus, inheritance is given by the Lord. Paul says, even if you may be paid less than you deserve, God will make it up to you in the end by a far greater inheritance. But, he said, if you are in the habit of wronging others, you can expect that God also sees that too and will repay you. 
You think, well, is he talking about me or is he talking about my master? Because I think he's probably talking about the master. Well, he's talking about both. And Paul then clarifies as he turns to the masters and reminds them that the same is true for them. In verse 4-1, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so we really come full circle here. We've got masters. You are under authority. Children, you are under authority. Sorry, masters, you are under authority. Uh, uh, Bondservants, you're under authority. Really, by extension, parents, you are under authority. Children, you are under authority. Husbands and wives, we're all under the authority of the Lordship of Christ. And what's interesting about this section and these verses, especially 22 uh, to the end, is how many times the word Lord appears. I think that's really what Paul is getting at in these. He's not saying everything about these relationships, but he wants to put them in perspective of the Lordship of Christ. So just looking at verse 22, bondservants, slaves, right? Obey in everything those who are your earthly lords. That's the actual word is Lord there. Not by way of eye service as people pleaser, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for who? The Lord, not for men. Knowing that it is from the Lord that you will be uh, received the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, but there's no partiality. Masters, actually the word is Lord, uh, treat your bondservants, your slaves, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master or a Lord in heaven. The Lordship of Christ is everywhere. There's no place that, that God looks and doesn't say, this is mine. He's Lord of all. So as Christians, we live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Not just in worship on Sunday mornings, right? Not just in your quiet times, but in every aspect of, of your relationship, husband and wife, parent and child, in our jobs. But our hope is that the redeeming work of Christ brings the peace of Christ to bear in every area of our lives. Right? So that there's, this, this shouldn't leave us feeling like we're done for, right? This is impossible. We should leave feeling hopeful, that God cares enough about each of these relationships. So if you're, in a if you're dealing with a difficult child or children, you're dealing with a difficult parent or you're dealing with a difficult boss or a difficult employee or a difficult spouse, there's hope because Christ cares about these things. He cares about you and your relationships. He's at work in them seeking to display his glory. As I mentioned at the beginning, uh, the letter to the Colossians was delivered by the hand of uh, Tychicus and Onesimus. And so as he talked about masters and slaves, I, I can't think once again about the uncomfortability in the room as he, here is this once runaway slave now coming back home with a letter from Paul talking about how slaves and and masters are supposed to be treating one another, how husbands and wives and parents and children are supposed to submit to the lordship of Christ. When we think about the atmosphere in that room, we think about, man, why did Paul deliver it by his hand? Right? Didn't Paul know what he was doing? I think Paul knew exactly what he was doing. Onesimus 
was a slave that ran away from Colossae because he was looking for freedom. And in Christ, he found his freedom. And the book of Philemon, which is the next uh, book uh, in, just make sure, no, okay. It's the next, anyways, it's a companion book to this one. Uh, he deals more with Onesimus. But I think the reason why Paul delivered it by the hand of this runaway slave is that he wanted them to keep these, to keep the lordship of Christ in mind, that it is over all of these relationships. And it's relationships that we deal with in community. Right? How important is it that we talk about these relationships in a place where we can encourage one another and strengthen one another? We can help one another and pray for one another. We need one another as we seek to live under the lordship of Christ in the most intimate of our relationships. Right? We need, we need to not pretend that everything is okay. Right? If you're struggling... We should reach out to a brother and sister in Christ and ask for prayer. And we need to, to help each other to live in the openness of our struggles. We don't need to pretend that everything is fine. We need to support one another. And we need one another going together to the Lord for both, prayer, for both support and prayer for each other. Paul ends this section with these commands, and I think they're pointed for a reason, to hit us very much in the heart and to help us to realize that he both loves us enough to care about and speak to these relationships, but also to remind us that there's no place that his lordship does not go. So Jesus Christ is Lord of the home, and he calls us to selfless marriage under the lordship of Christ, discipleship-oriented parenting under the lordship of Christ, and laboring under the Lordship of Christ. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us as we contemplate these commands and, and the ways in which we have failed them to not become overwhelmed, but to press in, to turn to you as you reveal to us in our own minds, even as we take communion now, as you show us where we have failed, I pray that you would apply the balm of your forgiveness. Father, help us uh, to submit every area of our lives to you. And I pray that as a church, as we continue uh, to grow in Christ, that you would help us to reap the benefits, that Christ might be glorified in our lives and in our church and in our community and in the world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.